This morning's scripture reading comes from the book of Luke, chapter 6, verses 20 through 23. Listen for the word of God. Then he looked up at his disciples and said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you will be filled. Blessed are you who weep now, for you will laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you, and when they exclude you, revile you, and defame you on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for surely your reward is great in heaven, for that is what their ancestors did to the prophets. For the word of God in Scripture, for the word of God among us, for the word of God within us. Thanks be to God. Forgot about that mask for a second. Good morning, my friends. My name is Daddy Warbucks, and I'm the senior pastor here at Arapahoe United Methodist Church. Uh, my name is Scott Gilliland, and if you're wondering what in the world is going on, you just tuned in. We're having fun today. This is Bible on Broadway here at Arapahoe, and we are so glad that you've chosen to worship with us this morning. Whether you're watching online right now in the moment or you're watching later on this week, thank you for choosing to worship with us. And if you want to be in contact with us as a church, uh, go to our website, arapahoumc.org new. There you'll find a short form to fill out. Go ahead and fill that form out, uh, and you'll receive our weekly newsletter. You'll also get a personal contact from me and another pastor on our staff. Let us know if you've got kids in the home. That'll sign you up for our weekly kids ministry newsletter, and you'll also get a personal contact from our family ministries pastor, Pastor Maggie, who just read for us our scripture this morning. We are looking today at the musical Annie, if you can't tell. Uh, and uh, you, if you can't tell by my low-budget Daddy Warbucks get up today, uh, I, my first option was to shave my head, which uh, my wife voted a resounding no on, and it turns out she had the, the, the veto power there. And, and so then I went to buy a bald cap, and I thought, oh, this will be easy, and I opened up the instructions, and I'm not kidding when I say there were 13 um, items that I needed to buy in addition to this cap and 12 steps to follow. It looked like a user agreement for an iPhone update, so I just put it on my head and rubber-banded it in the back. So I'm your low-budget Daddy Warbucks today. If you've never seen the musical Annie and you're wondering what's going on, you're probably familiar with the character because she's a popular culture icon, uh, the little red-headed orphan. The musical itself is about a little orphan named Annie who's growing up in um, early uh, 1930s America in an orphanage in New York City, one of the most impoverished people in our country. And, and she's looking for her family. She's convinced that somewhere out there her family can be found. And, and she's right, but not in the way that she thinks. She finds her family through the love and care of a man named Daddy Warbucks, a titan of industry, a Rockefeller type, who lives in a mansion with dozens of servants and an indoor tennis court and an indoor swimming pool and, and everything a heart could desire. And yet when she meets him, his heart is cold. And he doesn't give her much time of day. She's there only for a couple of weeks to improve his public image. And over time, though, Daddy Warbucks realizes that all of the things that, that he has amassed in this life, the wealth, the fame, the notoriety, none of it satisfies him. That is, 
until he meets Annie, and he discovers that which makes his life meaningful, a family. And he adopts her, and the end of the musical is them acknowledging how they need nothing in the world except for each other. It's really a beautiful story. And as I was refamiliarizing myself with the story this past week, I noticed that Daddy Warbucks is really the character that experiences the greatest arc during the musical. It's called Annie, but it's really the story of him being changed by this relationship with this poor orphan little girl. And um, it got me thinking about the way that they bless one another, Annie and Daddy Warbucks. Uh, the way that he uses his wealth and, and, and means to adopt Annie and bring, him, bring her into his family that's, that's just beginning and, and, and the way that uh, she gets to experience the, the, the joys of that, but really the joy of relationship with him, but also the way that he's blessed. He's blessed in a way that nothing else in his world possibly could have blessed him. He's blessed by welcoming her into his life and by choosing a path in life that was different than the winning strategy he was accustomed to. In fact, it was, a, it was a move that would not have made sense as an investment, but for him, it was the right thing, and it blessed him as a result. And this relationship of blessing, it, it was rolling around in my mind as I found myself reading a passage this week that I'm very familiar with, but I come back to time and time again as a centering verse of sorts for myself. And that's the passage from the Gospel of Luke that we heard read just a moment ago by Pastor Maggie. Um, it's Luke's version of the Beatitudes. Now, the, the, the version we're more familiar with, if we know the Beatitudes, is, is Matthew's Gospel. And they sound a little bit loftier. You know, Matthew's Gospel was really written for a specific people, and so was Luke's. Matthew's Gospel was written for the Jewish community. It was kind of an insider gospel. You had to understand the Old Testament and the Jewish tradition to really get everything out of it. It was very frequently very lofty and theological and hard to access if you were some Someone not from within that community. And so it, it, it almost at times can feel like Daddy Warbucks's mansion, out of reach for the everyday person. And, and, and the Gospel of Luke, on the other hand, is written for everybody else. It's written for the outsider. It's written for the outcast. It's written for the everyday person. It tries to bring the mansion of Daddy Warbucks down to the streets of New York City outside the door of the orphanage. And so Matthew's Beatitudes are lofty and sermonic. It's blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. But Luke doesn't let us off the hook. The Jesus that Luke is introducing us to is a Jesus who is for the poor, period. Blessed are the poor. Blessed are the hungry, period. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are those who weep. Blessed are those who are rejected. None of this flowery language. No, Luke wants to make clear that Jesus is, is positioning himself with those who are on the margins, on the outside, on the bottom looking up. That's the Jesus that Luke wants us to get to know. It reminds me of the Lord's Prayer that we heard just a moment ago from Amanda. Uh, this, this prayer that unites Christians around the world, even though we can disagree about so much, it's one of those uniting bonds. The prayer that Jesus taught us to pray. And, and those words can kind of roll off of our tongue in a ritual way, and we can forget the power they hold. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. On earth as it is in heaven. It's a powerful statement to make. It's a very Luke-style statement to make. Thy kingdom come on earth 
as it is in heaven. You know, heaven is not going to be in the clouds forever. That's not the way that God has designed the world to be. No, ever since Jesus' arrival, the kingdom of God, heaven, has been crashing down upon the earth, and we get glimpses of it at times. We call that seeing heaven on earth, right? But, but we know that is an unfinished work, and so we, as the Christian people, are tasked with co-laboring with God to usher the kingdom of God into the earth. God's kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. I think Luke wants us to be reminded of that kind of a theme, that kind of an idea, that the gospel is not simply meant to live up in the clouds. No, the promises of God's kingdom is grounded in the real world. The promise of God's kingdom is grounded in the real world. It's not good enough to have some insiders-only lofty sermonic version of Jesus and the gospel. Luke wants to make clear that the promises of God's kingdom is grounded in the real world. I think that we can rob the gospel of its power when it stays stuck up here. You know, when, when we talk about the poor in spirit and it becomes a thought exercise, what if Daddy Warbucks had seen Annie and thought, what a terrible thing, that poor orphan, somebody should help her. How many times do I think about the gospel or think about Jesus or think about God's love at work in the world and it stays stuck up in my brain and never makes its way down into my heart and into my hands and into my feet. And Luke has no patience for his faith that stays contained in our brains. And I'm not saying that we should keep our brains checked at the door. Say amen somebody. God gave us a brain, so use it. At the same time, if it stays stuck up here, and the gospel and Christ's love never invade our heart or our hands or our feet, then I believe that we have failed the gospel. I believe Luke believes we've failed the gospel. Luke says Jesus isn't talking about the poor in spirit. Jesus is talking about the poor. He's not talking about the hungry in spirit. He's talking about the hungry. My friends, the point is this. Jesus didn't just come to change the way that we think. Jesus came to change the way that we are. Jesus didn't just come to change the way that we think. Jesus came to change the way that we are. He came to eradicate poverty, eradicate hunger, eradicate inequality. And until we commit ourselves and our lives to that work, then we have not fully engaged with the gospel yet, my friends. Let's keep moving. Because what I just said might sound like a nice pithy statement. In fact, you could print that on a little tea towel and buy it from Bed Bath & Beyond and hang it in your kitchen. It would look real nice. But living that out is a whole lot harder. I found that to be true in my life. The challenging thing is this, the world that we live in is going to sell us on an image that is in direct contrast to what God is trying to call us towards. The last several months we've lived our lives on these, right? In fact, this is how many of us are watching worship this morning. And as I've been on my smartphone so much these last uh, several months, I've realized that I am inundated with advertisements in a new and, and insidious way, honestly. They are everywhere. They're on our web pages. They're in the games. They're on videos we watch. Now I'm watching live sports. Today is Cowboys game day. I've got a pork butt on the smoker. I've got the game starting at 720. It's good day in my household, right? Um, and advertisements are everywhere. Watching live sports, I'm watching commercials again for the first time in a long time. And what I'm realizing is that ad agencies, ad agencies are very familiar with the gospel of Luke. They're very familiar with that passage that we just read. Do you know why? Because they know that people don't like being poor or hungry or mourning and weeping or rejected. They know people hate that. And so what do they sell us on? If you just buy these things, if you just buy this product, if you just give us this money, we're going to make you rich, full, happy, and well-liked. 
We know you feel poor or hungry or you're mournful or you're rejected. So we're going to make you rich, full, happy, and well-liked. Ultimately, these things are meant to sell us on being a winner, right? To be like Daddy Warbucks, to have all of the things and to live the life that we've always dreamed of. But of course, these things that we get sold on, they don't satisfy us, do they? It's not, even though they're trying to sell us on this easy street, right? That's, those things don't, don't satisfy us in the long term. Those are short-term gains. I am a technology junkie. Anybody else out there, an early adopter, raise your hand. It's time for confession. I love to buy all the gadgets, all the gizmos that I convince myself I need. I convince myself I desperately need in my life. They will finally make my life worth living, right? And I've got this basket in our house that I call the basket of shame. Reagan doesn't call it this. I call it this. It is full of all of the techno gadgets that I've bought over the years that now sit uncharged, unused, delinquent for how many months and years. They're collecting dust. All these things that I was convinced in the moment that I had to buy, I had to own, I had to have because they would change my life forever. And they're sitting there unused, uncharged, delinquent. It's my basket of shame. Every time I ever want to buy something new, some new little gadget, Reagan will point at the basket and say, is it going to end up in there? <laughs> and so frequently the answer is, yeah, it is. Of course, the irony of this, of this, you know, the, this selling us on this winning lifestyle, right? The irony is that it's not designed to work. The ad agencies, they, the companies, they know that it's not going to satisfy us. They don't want us to be a one-time customer, that's a failing business model. They want us to come back again and again and again looking for that next thing because the stuff gets old and the belly doesn't stay full and happiness fades and some people just aren't going to like you. So don't let a slick marketing team sell you on their solution to being rich, full, happy, and well-liked. And here's the problem with the sales strategy of the world. It feeds self-centeredness. It's all built around this idea that we are self-centered individuals. And the reality is there is a sinful part of us that is self-centered. They try to convince us that if we have just a bit more money or a bit more stuff or if people like us or envy us just a little bit more, that we'll finally be satisfied, but we won't. We won't ever be satisfied by those things. Do you know why? Because you were not designed to be satisfied by that. You were not designed to be self-centered. You'll wake up one day and you'll feel, even with everything around you, even if you're in a mansion with a tennis court and a swimming pool and dozens of servants to serve your every whim, you'll still feel this gnawing sense that something is wrong because it is. Because people are poor and people are hungry and people are weeping and God created us to be connected to each other, to be discontented, to be unsatisfied when a sister or brother is suffering. In Genesis 2, God makes a human being, holds them in God's hands, and says it's not good that they should be alone. We are designed to care for people other than ourselves. We are designed to be connected. So maybe you're not satisfied, and maybe that's a good thing. We don't get to live in God's kingdom alone. It's an inherently connected place. And so maybe the reason you're so dissatisfied in life is because God's Spirit is stirring in you to do some kingdom building. I think that's a good thing. That could be the blessing that God blesses us with, that gives to those of us who are not poor or hungry or weeping or rejected in any given moment. So God says, do you want to feel rich? Give generously of what you have. Do you want to feel full? Feed the hungry that God puts in your path. Do you want to feel 
joy. Be willing to be present with people who are real with you. And don't just pretend to be happy for appearance's sake. Do you want to understand love? Do things that are worth being rejected for. Step closer to those being mocked and persecuted. God's sales pitch is a losing strategy, not a winning one. God's sales pitch is a losing strategy. It's give away your money. It's give away your food. It's give away yourself. Give away your time. Give away your status. You know, Jesus keeps speaking in this, sixth, in this sixth chapter, and it sounds a little dark for a moment, but I want you to stay with me. Jesus says this, But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you will be hungry. Woe to you who are laughing now, for you will mourn and weep. Woe to you when all speak well of you, for that is what their ancestors did to the false prophets. I don't think Jesus is condemning those of us who may feel rich or full or happy or well-liked in the moment. I think Jesus is challenging us, is convicting us to consider how we use these things, how we steward these resources, how we use these gifts as a blessing for those around us because the reality is if we think these things are going to save us, they won't. The reward that we will reap has already been reaped. They have done the greatest good they will ever do for our lives. Jesus is not condemning us, but he is challenging us and asking us to consider this, that for God's kingdom to win, sometimes we will need to lose. I'm going to say that again because it's going to help somebody this Sunday. For God's kingdom to win, sometimes we will need to lose. And that's a hard message to hear in the heart of the North Dallas suburbs, I know. For the poor to be raised up, we need to lose our greed. For the hungry to be fed, we need to lose our gluttony. For the rejected to feel loved, we need to lose our apathy. I'm stepping on my toes now. Am I stepping on yours? For the kingdom of God to be built, God needs a world ready to lose. God's kingdom is chock full of losers. Some of us are born into losing situations. Some of us are living in losing situations right now. That's who Jesus has a heart for in the Gospel of Luke. If you feel like you're living in a losing situation right now, I pray that you spend some time with the Gospel of Luke this week and be reintroduced to a Christ who is here for you. But some of us need to choose to lose. That's who Jesus is preaching to amongst his followers, the ones who need to choose to lose, to walk away from the path of worldly success. The point is this, Jesus doesn't give a fly and flip what kind of watch you wear, what kind of house you own, what kind of car you drive, what kind of perfect family you put on Facebook, what kind of likes or tweets or retweets, what kind of sales report you just turned in. Jesus doesn't care about any of that. Jesus wants to know if we can lay all of that down for his sake. Jesus wants to know if God's kingdom is worth it to us to feel like a loser if we can choose this family of losers, so that not only are we raised up, but the whole world can be raised up alongside with us. Annie, little orphan Annie, what a simple musical. It's about a little girl searching for her family and finding in a man who must choose to leave the path of winning and instead choose to lose for the sake of a girl deemed a loser by the world around her. What a profound story. Are you ready to choose to lose? Jesus says, blessed are the losers. Blessed are those who invite in the poor and the hungry, the mourning and the rejected. Blessed are those who see the people on the streets. Blessed are those who leave the lofty mansions 
and enter into the real world. Blessed are those who, who welcome in the kingdom of God to the earth around us. Blessed are those willing to rid themselves of greed and gluttony and apathy. Blessed are those who walk away from the winning path and choose God's losing strategy. Blessed are the losers. Amen.